You can be turning in your Bibles to Ephesians once again, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. Ephesians 3, the epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. And we read there the prayer, the earnest prayer of the Apostle Paul, which is my prayer for us as well. For this cause I bow my knees, he says, unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, if you've noticed from your bulletin, I have purposely titled this message, God is love. How do we apprehend him? Part two. God is love. How do we apprehend him? Part two. And I, I deliberately use the word apprehend and not how do we see him? How do we view him or understand him to be? But how do we apprehend him? Because this carries the idea of accuracy uh, or more definitive comprehension of him. So you recall maybe from several weeks ago, the uh, close connection and tie between apprehension and uh, comprehension. For this is exactly what Paul is exhorting in Ephesians chapter three there uh, in the in the word. I think it's verse verse 18. He is strongly exhorting a, a kind of like a precision in your perception of him. So you find him emphatic there in 318, not simply that you may be able to comprehend, but fully able. The authorized version here does not bring this out, but the apostle did not say that you may be able, but that you may be fully able, fully able. And he deliberately chose a word that had that extra meaning uh, that you may be fully able to comprehend or uh, better apprehend. And then there is the reason why I have a part two in the title, and that's probably even more important. And uh, to the point, this is because the last time I spoke on the subject, it ended kind of abruptly, but at a very strategic point. So there's a very important second half or a part two, if you will, that I want to talk about now. To be most concise, we are talking about how our view of God shapes our relationship with him. And the principle that you will always relate to God in the way that you see God. And then secondly, there is this most powerful implication. What you know to be true about who God is will form your understanding of everything else. And of even more importance, our knowing, as in Gnosko knowing who God is in truth, 
cannot be separated from our salvation. Knowledge of God and salvation go together. Knowing God and salvation are inseparable. Christ came to give us this proper and accurate knowing. This precise understanding. John tells us this as well. 1 John 5.20 And we know the Son of God is come and hath given us an understanding. Well, came to give us an understanding for what, John? That we may know Him. That's why He came. That's the understanding that He has come to give. That we may know Him that is true, and we are in Him that is true, even in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. So all along, kind of the over, the overarching title has been God is love, taken from 1 John, as you recall, chapter 4. <clears throat> but we are also talking about knowing God, which would also be a very fitting title. Truly knowing Him or knowing Him for who He truly is. I would also emphasize that as I am bringing to light the God uh, that God in His essential character and person is love, and knowing Him in this manner, I am referring to the entire Trinity. When Jesus said, This is life eternal, that they might know Thee, the only true God, referring to His Father, and Jesus Christ whom Thou hast sent, He's emphasizing the importance of knowing God truly, that is the Father, but he's including himself when he adds, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. So, eternal life is knowing the Trinity, the whole Trinity. Eternal life is knowing the Father, it is knowing the Son, and it is knowing the Spirit. It's Trinitarian, we speak of the Trinity. Well, what about the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit's part is as the revealer of this knowing or knowledge, and he gives us the understanding that we may gnosko him that is true. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 12 reveals him in this way. Described as the spirit of truth, the guider into all truth, uh, here the revealer of truth, which certainly would include revealing who God truly or truthfully is. So it reads, God hath revealed unto us by his spirit, for the spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God, which I believe Paul is emphasizing, makes him the only one that is qualified uh, to reveal to us who God is in his core essence. Even so, says the things of God knoweth no man, but the spirit of God, and he goes on to say that, uh, we have received the Spirit, which is of, of God, that we might know. So the main point being that we could not possess the knowing that leads to our eternal life except the Holy Spirit grant it. And the point is that the, Holy, uh, the, the whole Trinity is involved in this. So how are we going to truly know who God truly is? That's the question we asked. That's where we kind of left off last time. When answering the question of who God is most fundamentally, we talked of two ways, uh, two ways that we could go. And uh, this this kind of approach was not original with me, but it was tremendously helpful to my understanding. 
So I'm going to kind of recap quickly the first direction a person could go, which is exactly where we left off. Now, though this first way that you could go in your thinking is a wrong way, it's not just the way that non-Christians go in their thinking and they're uh, trying to figure out who God is or what God is like. Christians strong in the faith can fall back into this at times. So the first way reasons like this. Because God is the creator, the one who created all things, he's the one in charge. And since he made all things, it is his prerogative and right to say how things are going to be governed and how things are going to go. He's laid down the rules and the laws and he has a perfect moral standard for us, the subjects of his rule to follow. But there's a problem. <clears throat> you don't meet that perfect moral standard, but that's what he he's really interested in. He is the law. So if you go this path in your thinking, God is essentially a lawgiver. Who is he in essence? I am the law. That's God. Now, I would urge you to consider whether you agree or disagree, consciously or subconsciously, we think of God in that way a lot. It may be a uh, kind of like a subtle default position <clears throat> that we fall back on, but we go for this option a lot. I did. It was the position and impression upon my mind that I, I grew up with in the Roman Catholic system, we'll call it. But it carried over into my Protestantism. Now, you all know Martin Luther, and Martin Luther agonized and was tormented as he could only see God as a lawgiver, as a young monk. And he was haunted by a misinterpretation of the holiness of God. He came to the place in his life where he, he hated the concept of the justice of God. He said, quote, Christ seems to me as an angry judge with a sword in his hand. You ask me if I love God, this God who damns sinners, who imposes the relentless degrees of his laws on their consciences. Love God, said Luther. Sometimes I hate him. Luther was rather bombastic, <laughs> but he was also very uh, transparent and very honest. That's where he was. OK, so if God is essentially a lawgiver, if that's the most basic thing to say about him, you will always relate to him as a lawgiver because that's who he is. You may feel grateful and uh, have gratitude for him for letting you off for the ways that you've not kept his laws, and even counting you as a law-abiding citizen. But love is not elicited from this kind of relationship. You, you will not be able to love a God like this. You will end up in the same position that Martin Luther did, whether it's expressed or whether it's just something in your heart. Serving the great lawgiver who, it seems, has nothing to do with love. And the truth underneath, though we would never say it, is this God 
This is a God that we really don't want to be around. Uh, this is the type of God that we really don't want to spend much time with. But that's where you go. That's where one will end up if you start your description of God by thinking of him simply or only as a lawgiver. Now, listen, I intentionally said only. I used the word only just then. That's where you go if you start your description of God by thinking of him only as a lawgiver. He is a lawgiver and is the one in charge. And I'm not I'm not saying that that he's not. The point that I'm making is that there is a reality for all of us to come to an imbalance and a lopsided perception of who God truly is. And that says nothing of all the malice that Satan is polluting our minds with and his incessant efforts to muddy the waters and skew the picture of who God is and what he's truly like. Furthermore, how important is this knowing him for who he truly is? This knowledge of the holy, to borrow Tozer's title, eternal life. That's how important. And this is eternal life that they might know thee as the only true God. And so we are to know him truly and know him to be not simply or only one to whom we owe obedience to whom we owe duties. Now, our fallen nature tends to keep falling back to this wrong idea, which is really kind of a caricature in our minds of what God is really like. It is a lie. It is a lie from the pit of hell. And as I said, the devil in his wicked malice is quite happy to distort the picture and sees us stumbling around in this darkness. Now, here is the answer to that. Just to digress a little. We have to be fighters, beloved. And it is a fight in the mind. I mentioned the other night, the scripture exhorts much of what I called mind work uh, for us to do. Much of the battle is in our minds. So we saw then in Romans 12, 2, we are to renew them. Get rid of old and false thoughts and thinking and renew, get new and true thoughts and thinking. So this is why Paul also talks to Timothy and he exhorts him, Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. It's a fight of faith, which primarily goes on in your mind, your thinking, your brains, that is where you are to be the warrior. Oh, man of God, he says, basically, in essence, flee garbage pursuits, flee garbage thoughts, but follow after. And he gives a list. And one of the things in the list of uh, three or four things is love. Get rid of that, but pursue, follow after love. Fight the good fight of faith. Now sit up and take note. What does he couple with this first admonition to Timothy and to us? If you look at that verse, there's no and. It's just a comma. Fight the good fight of faith, comma, lay hold on eternal life. 
this phrase, lay hold on, is a very strong, uh, in a very strong imperative mood. Paul is saying that you need to get a white knuckle grip on this. You are to clutch it. It will want to escape. You, you will have to fight to keep it. Fight this good fight to clutch, to grip tightly and to keep it. Keep what? Clutch what? Lay hold of what? Eternal life. What is eternal life? And here we come full circle back to the profound answer to what Paul is telling Timothy to lay hold on. What is eternal life? This. This is eternal life that we might truly know the only true God, the Father in Jesus Christ, the Son whom He has sent. So, dearly beloved, at least for my part, this is exactly what we are doing this is exactly what I've been doing, laying hold on eternal life, which is this accurate and true knowing of who the only true God truly is. This will reward us greatly. It will reward us with a joy unspeakable, but a fight will be involved. A good fight. It will be a fight for joy. Fight for joy. I now more than ever understand why John Piper came up with that phrase, fight for joy. And um, <clears throat> it came out in his, uh, his first book, um, Desiring God, and, and maybe into the second one, When I Don't Desire God. But it was this idea of fighting for joy. There's some work involved. It is a fight and there is a joy, but it's a joy that's worth the fight. Seeing God as loving Father is the joyful vision that is our strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. This happy, this accurate, this proper view of God is our strength. All right, so back from that digression and to the heart and best part of the message, I have I've shown you the wrong path. The wrong path to take, the wrong way to go in discovering exactly who God is and what He is actually like. That way to go presents nothing attractive and a very unattractive portrayal and caricature of the God, caricature of the God and Father that Jesus came to make known. If we get no further in our minds, in our mind work, then understanding God to be simply one in charge, only as ruler giving out rules or lawgiver laying down laws, we shall be, of all men, most miserable. We will not love a God like this. And yes, we will end up in the same position of Martin Luther hating God, especially when experiencing confusing and sore trials. That's where we're tested the most. And this is one thing that I feel I yet have to address and I'm I'm praying to the Lord that we can get beyond this impasse, beyond this roadblock that comes into our thinking. Because Satan really does his work when we're under some devastating trial, when we are in such... uh, Whatever, I know a lot of you are under trial. And it's it's when you're in trial, you're like, John, you keep kind of like, uh, so to speak, harping on God is love, God is love. And it's like, uh, well... I can't see that because right now I, I am in such terrible misery and such sore affliction that I, I can't, I just can't 
I can't see it. And so we have to work through that. But one of the reasons is that we're not seeing God for who he truly is. But now I want to consider what is the Christian and biblical view, the Christian path to take, the Christian way to go. And here's something else. If I raise my voice, it's not because I'm angry. I'm really not angry. You know, it's, uh, there might be a difference between anger and passion, but the, the uh, don't, don't think I'm angry or, or I'm, 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 I'm just, I want you to know the joy that can be had. So the Christian way to go, as we are talking of those two possible ways, is to push back much, much further. Eternity passed further. This is because there's something way more profound to be said and consider about God than simply the fact that he is in charge and a lawgiver. Why is it more profound? Because there was a time, as we said in our closing remarks last time, there was a time before creation when there was nothing for him to be in charge of. So then before he created, he was not a lawgiver, nor was there any need for, for him to be. Because before creation, there was no one to give laws to. So what we have to see now is that if we have a God who has an existence before he created and before he is ever in charge of anything, well, what sort of God is that? And. I know it can be argued, some would argue, like, you can't, you can't use that for the argument because, I guess because I wasn't there. Nobody was there before he created the world. Yes, there was. God was there. God was with God. And so we come to what Jesus tells us about what God was like. Before the foundation of the world. Please turn now to John 17, 24. The Gospel of John 17 and verse 24. And as you turn in there, I have five questions. Okay, and I, in these five questions, I don't want you to, uh, you know, answer out loud. I just want you to kind of answer them in your own mind. <clears throat> and here's the first one. Who is the one that can reveal and make known who the Father truly and essentially is? Now, who is that? Secondly, is he the only one that can disclose and unveil who the father is? Third, is there any man who can see and know God for who he truly is in and of himself? That is in and of the man's self. Next, did Christ come to reveal or to show us the father? And then one more question. Why does Jesus know the Father best? And why does Jesus know the Father most precise? All right, we find the answer to all these questions in two verses. Now, I know you're at John seventeen twenty four, but this is from Matthew eleven twenty seven. You don't have to turn there. It's the answer to these questions. All things are delivered unto me of my Father... And no man knoweth the Son, but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father, save or except for the Son, 
and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. So yes, Christ is the revealer of the Father and only him. And why does Jesus know the Father best and is the most qualified to reveal who the Father is? John gives us two reasons, which is, to put it in simplest language, are one, the length of time that they have existed together, uh, and secondly, the loving intimacy of their relationship. Let me read it. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. He came into this world to declare Him. Now that, that language there, in the bosom of the Father, it says is in the bosom of the Father. It doesn't say He was or He'll return to it. It's present tense who is in the bosom of the Father. And the idea of the bosom of the Father is this very, very close. So that's the intimacy of their relationship. And it's also the longevity of their relationship. He's in the bosom of the Father, and that's where He's always been. And as much as God is infinite and eternal, He was eternally with Him. So at the end of verse 24, back now into our uh, Gospel of John, Christ does declare him for us to see and to know. And at the end of verse 24, Jesus says to his father exactly what God was like before creation. He says, Father, you loved me before the foundation of the world. That is what God was like before the foundation of the world. Not a lawgiver, but a father. Loving his son through the spirit, not stagnant or stationary, but it was dynamic. This relationship was moving through eternity. There was not a start point, in other words, at which the son was birthed uh, and this loving father and son relationship began. No, he was eternally begotten. Athanasius came up with this phrase, eternally begotten, to describe the co-eternal existence of Christ, the Son with the Father. And what he was trying to do, he was trying to defend the early Trinitarian theology of, of the time, that Jesus the Christ had to be completely and eternally equal to the Father. And so for Athanasius, Jesus cannot be lesser than the Father in any way, Jesus had to be of the same substance and of the same eternity. So Jesus says, Father, you love me before the foundation of the world. What was before the foundation of the world? Nothing but the Trinity. A father being love, eternally pouring out and shedding abroad his love upon his son through the spirit. God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. So in this existence and relationship they had, there was perfect contentment. I try to think of an illustration. There's no illustration that we could give, right? So I was thinking, okay, so here's the triune God. And uh, I was like, okay, so, so here's this perfect contentment. And it's this relationship almost like a ball, right? And we're, we're, th- we're seeing this ball. 
I'm, I'm thinking of even like the little Siri ball that comes up when you ask for, right? So I don't want to get ridiculous here, but so this, so this is Father, Son, and and Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit, and the Father is is pouring out His love upon His Son, Son basking in this love, and it is through the Spirit that this is happening, and this is kind of going through space, right? So so it's so it's occurring, it's occurring, it's perfect contentment, and it and it's going all through eternity. But the problem is you can't use an illustration because there was no space. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but, you know, that's the best I could do. So um, the, the point being that they were perfectly content. There was a self-satisfaction in this eternal moving existence. Okay. So had it never been interrupted, had that relationship never been interrupted, they would have continued in that serene state of satisfaction and of divine complacency. All right. Now, one author wrote, the word complacency gets quite the bad rap in our churches today. Old Puritan preachers and many classic revivalists were strong proponents of divine contentment. When you read the words of Charles Spurgeon, Jonathan Edwards and others, the term complacency was used often. It was considered a virtue. Now, you guys were on the job site, right? You know, your boss would come along every once in a while and say, look, uh, don't get complacent, right? So it usually had this negative thing like, don't, don't get satisfied or settle in. We don't need to do anything better or improve situation. Don't, but that's not how it's, this divine complacency was this, this incredible satisfaction and contentment. So Jesus clearly helps us as he declares who the Father is. You love me before the foundation of the world. And that is who God is. That is the most profound and true thing to say about God. Loving Father. Now, I know you're sleepy. And I, I, I mentioned the other, the other day why this new change in our schedule it's hard for you after that lunch to, to stay alert and to hang with me. It's it's puts more effort on the person speaking because of these things. So I'm going to try to be more animated or whatever I need to do to help you help you stay awake. All right. So there's no one else that could more accurately define who God the Father is, but Jesus, the son. Before the foundation of the world, before anything created or made that was made, Jesus says, you love me. And for all eternity prior, Jesus basked in the love that his father was showering upon him through the spirit. And equally important here is Jesus defining God, the father's glory that he says was given him. So there are two really astounding and astonishing things in this very precious territory of God's word. God's glory that he was giving to his son was the father's love. He states it very clearly, defining it by the little word for. So listen to the scripture. That they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. That's my glory. That's what I most glory in. The love wherewith thou hast loved me. That was the glory. The Father's love continually 
streaming to the sun was the glory that was given or which thou hast given me. So that means that God is not primarily about ruling and setting forth laws. What does it mean to be a father? All you who are fathers. To be a father implies that you give life. Without a son, you're not a father. You can't be called a father or be a father unless you give life or unless you beget. And you can't be a father without loving relationship. I don't mean to be overly crass, but there are a lot of so-called fathers that are just about making babies. All right? But there's no loving relationship between that one and the babies. So you have to have both. To be a father, you have to be able to give life, but you also have to have loving relationship. Very important. And this is implied in the concept father. So as a father, this is what God's about. Giving life, loving relationship. So let's revisit 1 John 4, 7, where John clearly unpacks this for us. I'm, I'm dealing with this the Trinitarian members, if you will, individually. And God would have us delight in Him. He doesn't want us to have ill thoughts of Him or the Trinity at large. And simply stated, the clearer we see Him, the more we understand who God is and who they are, the more delightful the Trinity will become in our eyes and our hearts. I'm dealing with the Father, though, at this time. The whole Trinity is we're talking about. I'm dealing with each one kind of individually. And I'm, I'm dealing with origin. With whom did this originate or begin? So in the beginning, God, but He had no beginning. But what about us? What about our reality? And in, in, in whatever and whenever we want to call origin, did what happened have something to do with the originator's person and the originator's uh, character? And the answer is a resounding yes. God the Father sent the Son. Why? Why did He send Him? Love. For God so loved, He sent. We are looking first at the Father and His motives for sending. And His motives are a direct reflection of who He is. God is love. We're not asking what's God like, how does God act, how does God manifest His love. These are secondary considerations. The primary focus is God constitutionally. His distilled essence, as L. Martin often used the term, when you boil it all down, His glory, which we saw is His weight, His mass, His bulk, what He's made up of. So I want us to return to 1 John 4-7 and see John explaining this. And what John shows us here, may the Holy Spirit confirm and comfort you by this, this right view and the right path. Beloved, he says, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. Now get this. One of the most provocative and thought-provoking things that John says here. 
He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. You see that word knoweth? John is communicating kind of more of a subtle manner, but he's communicating the same emphatic exhortation that Paul is in our passage in Ephesians 3, to know the love. But more importantly, and to his main point, he's making an incredible statement of fact. It's just a fact. He that loveth not, knoweth not God. For God is love. You see the concept. This God is love in such a way and manner that you can't even know Him without becoming more loving yourself. His presence and manner transforms you to become loving. Now think in your minds. Have you ever met or known anyone like that? Someone, perhaps in your past, whose beautiful and loving demeanor was such that just a brief time in their presence, soon after being with them, you yourself are changed. You go away kinder, nicer, more loving yourself. This God is loving in such a way that knowing Him, John is saying, who is love, makes you love Him. But now when John says God is love, secondly, at the end of verse 8 there, he is, is he referring to the entire Trinity, which would be entirely true and appropriate. This is because there is what might be called the unanimity in the Trinity, or in most basic terms, there is this togetherness or agreement, this oneness. They are unified where they are and in what they are and in what they are about. So you've heard of the term triunity. Um, I think it was Athanasius that also said, we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. Christ said, I must be about my father's business. My business is the same as my father's business. And wherever one is, the other two are. You remember Philip was quite exasperated. Have you ever gotten exasperated? Have you ever gotten exasperated with the Lord? Philip was. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it will sufficeth us or satisfieth us. Can't you do that? Jesus tenderly responds, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He says, You're looking at him. He that has seen me has seen the Father. That's the level or the degree of the unity between them. But when John says God is love in verse 9, he's referring to the Father. In this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent His only begotten Son. So he's referring to the Father. And this is what it means to be a father, to love, to send, to give out life, to beget a son. So we have to get this, dearly beloved. It is so essential. It is so foundational. Before he ever ruled anything, this God was a life-giving, loving God, a father eternally giving life to and pouring out his love on his son. John 17:24. Father, thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. So when we go back, when we push way back, we find that 
is what God is like. That is the most foundational thing to say about God. And we must have this for the happiness of our own lives and the lives we touch in evangelistic efforts. So now we have to begin to draw this to a close. Sure, that's good news. Having saved the best for last. This is the ice cream. Okay. The grand finale, I might call it, but when you're speaking of the love of God, there is no grand finale. There is no finality. There's no finity. There's infinity. So I'm not going to exhaust it here. There will be more to come. But for now, consider the wonder and let your hearts be rejoice and be glad at these truths declared to us in John 17 to the end of the chapter 21 through 26, 21 through 26. Above all things, see this. Salvation and the joy of salvation is a relationship. The salvation that Christ brings to us is this relationship. It is the very relationship that he gloried in and that he called his glory. Which was given to him. Verse 22. It was the loving relationship that he eternally enjoyed and reveled in. So tight this bond of love that Jesus calls it a oneness. As thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, Jesus speaks of this as being one. So now the most compelling thing that Jesus could ever speak, the highest desire and request that he could express to his Father is that we would be brought into and share in this loving relationship. This relationship that he had always known and at the same level that he knew it. That's the oneness part. That they all, this is referring to us, beloved, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. In this oneness of this relationship, the same relationship that he had before the foundation of the world. He is bringing us into it. I and them, that they may be perfect in one. And dearest Jesus, how is that we may be one or made perfect in one? Of what does this oneness consist? He tells us in verse 22. And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them that they may be one, even as we are one. So he is saying this oneness happens. This oneness is empowered and realized by Jesus giving us the glory which was given to him of the father. The glory was streaming was the streaming of the father's love to the son. And now Jesus says, come. This was how I could see the travail of my soul and be satisfied. 
This was the joy that was set before me, that I would bring many sons to glory. Bring them to that glory, which until now was only shared between my father and I through the spirit, only known and enjoyed within the unity, the triunity, the oneness of the Trinity. But now, verse 22, the glory which my father has given to me is my good pleasure to give to you that you, dearly beloved, may be one, even as my father and I are one. He further prays to the father that the entire cosmos may know that as his father loved him in the same manner, his father loved us. This is why he says in another place, my father and yours. And John sixteen twenty seven. for the father himself loveth you. And speaking of loving relationship that was between the father and the son, is it really the same exact kind in nature as what Christ is bringing unto us? Jesus assures us of that as well in verse 26. And I have declared unto them thy name and will declare it that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. For I am not ashamed to call them brethren. But all this love language John is saying is coming from the Father. You've got to see this. This is the foundation upon which it all rests. From eternity, God is love. This is the accurate picture of the Father. And of this relationship, Jesus desires we share in it and has secured it for us. This is our status, dearly beloved, right now. Despite the doubtings of your own heart, the weakness of your faith, the whisperings of Satan, you are right now dear to the Father's heart and in the most intimate position. The same position which describes where Jesus is, was, and forever will be in the bosom of the Father. You are brought that close. You are valued. You are nurtured. You are loved. You are cherished by the Father as His beloved. Now pillow your head on these wonderful thoughts this evening. Let's pray.